Take your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 16. Romans 16. And before we read the text, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, I'm reminded of your word in Psalm 16 when you say, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us into relationship with you by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that in him we have been born again to a living hope. And Father, I pray that as we study your word today, as we come to terms with things that you tell us in your word, that, Lord, you would help us to leave here with a greater love for who you are and what you've done. I thank you, Lord, that you will hold us fast. There's nothing in this life that can separate us from your love, that we are secure in your hand. I pray that, Lord, you would help us to rest in those truths that we have sung this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul is in this section of the book that a lot of times we kind of skip over when we're reading this book. And uh, as we go through Romans 16... This first portion of the chapter, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 16, we have all of these different people that the Apostle Paul knew that were in the church at Rome that he sends a greeting to. Sometimes we just skip over this and we don't take a lot of time to think about it, but there are some really important truths that we will see in these verses. The last two weeks we talked about verses 1 and 2, and we talked about a woman named Phoebe, who the Apostle Paul commends to the church at Rome, He is sending this letter with her. The church receives this letter, and they are to help her in whatever she has need of, because she has been a patron of the Apostle Paul and many other Christians as well. He then transitions, and he goes from a commendation to a greeting. And he says to the church in the letter, in verse 3 and 4, Greet... Prisca. Now notice the word Prisca. This is the same person that, the, that Dave read to us about in the book of Acts 18 this morning. It is Priscilla and Aquila. It is just a different form of her name in the Greek language. So it's a shortened form. It would be like somebody could say Timothy or Tim. Most people call me Tim. Some people call me Timothy. Nobody calls me Timmy. Right, Jimmy? No, I'll get a lot of that at the door today. Prisca and Aquila. Prisca and Aquila. Or Aquila. Greet Prisca and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles, all the churches of the nations, give thanks to them as well. And greet the church in their house. 
greet the church in their house. Today we meet Priscilla and Aquila. We talk about them, we talk about the word to greet, and I also want us to focus this morning on this concept, greet the church in their house. And I want to think about that a little bit this morning, but let's do a little bit of a history lesson, and to do that, first of all, let's go book to, back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, the text that Dave read to us already this morning in the scripture reading. And let's look at some things about Priscilla and Aquila, a short history of who these people are. We find out some other biographical information about them in the book of Acts, also in the book of 1 Corinthians, but we'll look in the book of Acts. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is most often when this couple is mentioned, her name is mentioned first in the list. Most often we refer to Priscilla and Aquila, not Aquila and Priscilla. Why is that? Well, we really don't know. Maybe she was just the standout. But anyway, most of the times in the scriptural list, you will note that it goes Priscilla and Aquila. That is kind of the way that they typically are introduced. Perhaps it was because she was the leading um, partner in the business that they run. Maybe she had a greater social standing in the culture. Whatever the case, when people thought about them, they thought of Priscilla and Aquila. So this is the way they normally are mentioned, and I won't take any more time to even think about that, because anything else we would say would be merely hypothetical. But you will notice in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18, we find that Jews who were living in Rome, this happened during the reign of Claudius Caesar, in the year, somewhere in the year between 30 and 50 A.D. The Jews who were living in Rome were exiled from Rome and forced to leave. Priscilla and Aquila have been living in Rome. They've been doing business there. Because of this edict by Claudius Caesar, they are forced to leave. They meet the Apostle Paul, as we have read this morning, in the city of Corinth. They have gone there. Remember, we already talked about this. Corinth is like an ancient hub of commerce. Because of its location, because of the, because of the inlet, the isthmus that is there, because of Sancria and the port, it becomes a hub of commerce in the ancient world. Because of that, Priscilla and Aquila have gone there. They have had to leave Rome. They are, we find in this passage in Acts 18, they are of the same occupation as the Apostle Paul. They are tent makers. That Greek word could refer to just leather work in general. They work with leather, they work with skins. The Apostle Paul has this very same trade. Many times you will read in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul goes to a city, he goes there as a tent maker, he goes there as a leather worker, and that is how he is supporting himself as well as his entourage. Because Priscilla and Aquila are of that same trade, it tells us that he links arms with them in a business proposition in Corinth. 
And so they were the same occupation as Paul. They are tent makers. I talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Sometimes you hear people say, when they go out in ministry, and maybe they're going to a rural area, maybe they're going to an inner city, whatever the case may be, but it's a new upstart work, you will sometimes hear men that are going into ministry say, I'm going there as a tent maker. Well, clearly they're not there making tents, right? What are they doing? They're doing exactly the same thing that the Apostle Paul did, where he supported himself as he went out in mission work. So they would support themselves with an occupation in order to meet their physical needs, while they used that as a platform and a foundation on which to meet people in the community and to begin a work in the church. So they're the same occupation as Paul. We also find here that as itinerant tradesmen, they are evangelists. And what is this amazing is everywhere these people go, Priscilla and Aquila, they use their home as the place for the church. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 16. He says there in verse 16, in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church that is in their home, send you a greeting. Just like he says here in Romans 16. We also see in Ephesus. They go to Ephesus. They start a church. While they are in Ephesus starting a church, that church meets in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. This is exactly what we're talking about when we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that elders are to be people of hospitality. They're to be people of hospitality. He then goes on, and we see in this text that they excel in personal discipleship. I want to draw your attention to this because this is important. Notice with me in Acts 18, verse 24. Dave read this, but let's reread it this morning. It says, a Jew, so this Jew, same nationality as Priscilla and Aquila. They're both Jews. Now, a Jew named Apollos, he is a native of Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? It's in Egypt. It's in the delta of Egypt. It is a cultural learning center. One of the greatest libraries in the ancient world was in Alexandria. People would go there to be trained to think. Alexandria is like the thinking capital of the ancient world, just like Athens was. He is from Alexandria. He is well-trained in thinking and knowledge, rhetoric, this man, Apollos, is kind of an amazing man when we read this text and you also read 1 Corinthians. He comes to Ephesus. It tells us here he is an eloquent man. That means he's well-spoken. He knows how to teach. He knows how to converse. He is an eloquent man and he is competent in the Scripture. He knows the Old Testament word as a Jew. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In other words, at some point in his journey, the gospel has come to him. He's heard the gospel. He has believed in Jesus. 
Jesus is his Messiah. This man is born again. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he is fervent in spirit. And he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though we find in the text, his knowledge is deficient. He only knows of a baptism of John. John the baptizer. He begins to speak boldly in the synagogue, but Priscilla and Aquila hear him. They recognize that he is deficient. That there are things he has not learned. He is an eloquent man. He is competent. He knows how to teach. He has been trained in the best universities of the ancient world. And two blue-collar leather workers hear him preach. They invite him to their home. And they say to Pris Priscilla and Achilles, say to Apollos, let us help you. Apollos does not storm out the house and say, how dare those hillbillies try to teach me something. That's amazing to me. This is an eloquent, competent man who is well taught and versed in the scripture. Priscilla and Achilla, blue collar tent makers, pull them aside, bring them to their home, give them a cup of coffee, piece of coffee cake. They chat over the table and he listens. And one of the things that as we go through this text this morning and as we think about Priscilla and Aquila, these are obviously people who are very skilled by the Spirit of God in working with other people. They know how to do it and they are willing to do it and they specifically have so sanctified their home and their kitchen table to the Lord that they invite people to their home specifically to disciple them. This is their goal. So they excel in personal discipleship. Now, go back with me to Romans chapter 16, and let's see what we learn about these people in this text. It tells us here, Paul says, they are my fellow workers, or they are my fellow laborers. That's kind of a play on words. Because they are of the same trade. They are fellow laborers in making tents. But they are also fellow laborers for Christ. So he says here in the text, greet Priscilla and Aquila, we are the same trade, and that trade ultimately is Christ. We are fellow workers in Christ. Yes, we're laborers together in tents, but the reason we do our job, the reason for our vocation, is we are laboring for Christ. I would submit to us as Christians, all of us have a calling. All of us have a labor that we do in life, and it pays the bills, but my friend, it is much more than that for you, or it should be. 
It should be a platform for you to glorify Jesus Christ and for the Lord to use you and your family in this community to serve him. So Paul says, we are fellow workers. We're tent makers. But it's not just making tents. We are fellow laborers for Christ Jesus. And if we would look at our occupations that way, it would be revolutionary in our life. Because instead of just going to the job to dig a ditch, we would go to the job to dig a ditch for the glory of God. We would be there doing that work for the kingdom, realizing that it has eternal significance. What you do during the week is not just about making money and paying bills. What you do during the week is a calling by God placed upon you. Well, God has called you to this work. And he wants you to be sanctified in that work, set apart as a laborer for him. Now, that doesn't mean every person you meet, you lay the whole load on them of the gospel. You may not have that opportunity all through the week. But it does mean you're faithful. It does mean when the Lord opens a door, you walk through that door. It does mean that as you work during the week, Maybe you're humming a tune under your breath. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. And your coworker hears you sing that song. What is he talking about? But all through your life and all through your day, it's about giving glory to the Lord. Maybe it's putting a Bible on your desk. Whatever the case may be. And so we learn here that they are fellow workers for Christ with the Apostle Paul. Notice this. They risked their necks. When the Apostle Paul died, he didn't go to the gas chamber. When the Apostle Paul died, he didn't go to the gallows. He didn't go to the electric chair. He went to the what? Chopping block. And his neck was laid on a block, and an executioner took off his head. That very phrase is used here in this text that says that Priscilla and Aquila placed their necks under the axe for Paul. That some things that they were willing to do, some things that this couple were willing to do for the gospel, for the Apostle Paul, placed their life here in mortal jeopardy. You read stories from church history about Christians who have lived in a time and in a place where they had to make some of these choices. So someone like Corey Ten Boom, her dad, her sister, who were willing to hide Jews in their home. And they knew that if they were caught hiding Jews in their home in Nazi Germany, They were going to go to the concentration camp. Some of them were going to die. But they were willing to risk their life for those Jews and for the gospel. And what we find here is Priscilla and Aquila so believed the gospel, they were so committed to Jesus Christ, that they were willing to place their neck on a chopping block for Paul. 
Because of that, we find in the text, not only he, but all the churches of the Gentiles, all the churches of the nations, were thankful that in some way, at some time, in some very specific situations, Priscilla and Aquila counted the cost and were willing to die for the Lord. We also see here there is a church in their house. Now notice this. Notice what it says in the text. He says, Greet Prisca and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ, who put their necks on the block for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the nations give thanks as well. And then he says, Greet the church in their house. That's interesting. That is an interesting sentence. Because Paul is writing this letter to what? To who? The church of Rome. The church of Rome, though, is composed of what? Smaller churches in Rome that are meeting where? Homes. So what we see here, Paul is talking to a church within a church. He is talking to a church, the church at Rome. He says, greet these people, church at Rome. But within the church at Rome, there's another church. It's a local church. It's a church in a home. So when we think about the doctrine of the church, we think about New Testament churches. We understand that there's a universal church. The universal church is the body of Christ you cannot see. It's composed of everyone who is born again, who names Jesus as Lord, who is the spirit within them, who is trusted in the gospel. They are in the universal church. And then there are local churches, regional churches, and within that, there's even smaller deals. In fact, Jesus said what? When two or three gather in my name, where? I'm in their midst. So when mom and dad get on their knees at the edge of their bed and pray for kids, who's there? Jesus Christ. Two or three. Church within a church. A church in their house. Now, let's just think about that in a few minutes. Before we do, think, do so, though, let's think about this central command and what we are told here. The central command is Paul says to the Christians, greet. Now, I want you to get this word down in your thinking because we see it all through this passage. We will talk about it more. He says, greet. So here he says, greet Priscilla and Achilla. When you get to verse 5, he says, greet the church. When we get to verse 6, he says, greet Mary. Just before that, he says, greet Epinetus, greet Andronicus and Junia, greet, greet, greet. We see that word all through the New Testament. Almost every letter that the Apostle Paul writes, he ends it by saying, greet one another, and we always laugh about it, with a what? Holy kiss. The word to greet 
means to enfold in the arms. That's the Greek word. To enfold in the arms, it means to embrace. It means much more than simply welcome, be nice, smile. It means bring into your life, bring into your close proximity, bring into your private space. Greet one another. It is the central command in the text. Now, Jesus warns us some things about this. In the Gospels, in every one of the synoptics, he tells people of his day. He talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He says, these are guys who love to be called from men, rabbi, or teacher, or father, or reverend, or doctor so-and-so. They love that. And they love the greetings in the marketplace. And he's talking here about how we sometimes can love congratulatory praise from others, and we feed off of it. And it's what gives us our, our kind of like juice, and it gets, it's like what gets in our blood and keeps us going. And that congratulatory praise from others, it's kind of a listing of accomplishments that gives a sense of our own worthiness. And it is vain, and it is self-seeking, and it is absorption with self. And he says, beware of that. Be careful of that. We shouldn't put ourselves on display. It shouldn't be a personal show. Somebody comes in, in James 2, and they're well-dressed, and they drove a nice pickup, and they're visiting with us, and we know they got a lot of money. Oh, that person comes in the door, every greeter in the church is over saying hi, giving them a big hug. We're so glad you're with us today. A guy walking by with his thumb out like this and a backpack on his back and slept under the bridge down at the fishing access the night before. And he's kind of stinky and rough around the edges. And he walks in the door. How many of us shake his hand? and say, here's the best place you can sit. And we don't have a McDonald's here, but we'll take you to the Grays, or whatever the case may be. It's so easy to be partial. And yet the Bible teaches that we are to be impartial. Now, we are to do so with discernment, because in Second John, it tells us that if someone comes to us and they do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, they have rejected Christ and they are teaching a different Christ, he says, do not greet them. Because if you do so, you will share in their sin. So we are to be discerning. I'm not telling you to be undiscerning. I'm not telling you to be unwise. But we should be impartial in how we greet others and how we greet each other. How and when should I greet people? I love this verse in the book of Proverbs. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it will be counted as a curse. It will be counted as a curse. In other words, I can do the right thing, and I can do it at the wrong time and in the wrong way. 
and it kind of stinks. It's not a blessing to that person, it's a curse. Why? Because it's about me. When I greet someone, do I just do it with a loud voice? So everybody hears me in the foyer? I walk up to somebody, oh, it's so good to see you today! What am I doing? I'm not there to greet them, I'm doing what? I'm putting me on display. So this is a person who, oh, he greets people and he does it with a loud voice. But he also does it at six in the morning or five in the morning. The guy's not even awake. And, you know, so do I greet? Do I bless people by doing it at the right time and in the right way? That's what the Proverbs is telling us here. Think about greetings. Now, think about the church in the house. Notice that phrase, a church within a church. He talks, he says, greet also the church in their house. The word house there is a Greek word, oikos. The Greek word oikos just means a house, a dwelling place. It's very unspecific. It doesn't say how big the house is, how nice the house is. It doesn't say what the house is made out of. It's not specific to any culture. It's a place you live. It's a place your bed is. It's a place that you sleep. It's the place you eat. It's your home. And there is a church within the dwelling place of Priscilla and Aquila. It's interesting that the Lord and his apostles used the home as a base for their operations. Now, Jesus himself had no home, right? He said, I have nowhere to lay my head. He was completely dependent upon the hospitality of others during his itinerant earthly ministry. But think about how many times Jesus ministers out of a home and not out of a synagogue. Where does he usually get in trouble? The synagogue. Where does he usually have a platform for efficient and effective ministry? A home. The Lord and his apostles use a home as a base for their operations. This allowed for, think about the early church. Think about churches that still do this in the world today. It allows for less expense, right? You already got a house. You already got a place you live in. You start a church down in Georgetown, Idaho. You know, there's not gonna be many people to start. It's probably a whole lot more efficient to meet in a house, way less expensive, less structure, less institutionalism, allows for more organic growth. It's clearly what you see in the New Testament church. I don't got the time to go through it this morning, but if you look at it in the New Testament and you look how many references there are to the church being in a home, it astounds you. Manifold references to this. In fact, there's no references to them meeting in a what? A building like this. That's why we often say the church is not a what? Building. It is a what? People. It's the people. Not a building. Building is just where we gather. This burns down. Earthquake knocks it down. The government takes it from us. That doesn't stop the church. What does the church do? It meets in a forest. It meets in a home. It meets wherever it needs to meet. Because the church is not bound to a building. The church 
supersedes that. Why did the church become more institutional? How did it get from just being in homes to being in buildings? How did they get cathedrals? How did it get from here, from there to here? Let's think about some historical realities. We just got a couple minutes to do it. But if you think about the historical realities, the church began very informally, didn't it? It was an organic thing. There are apostles that are traveling the ancient world. They are sharing the message of Jesus. And as we see here, when people are converted, they're meeting in homes. It's very unstructured. Early persecution, up until 300 A.D., everywhere Christians go, their neck is on the block, or they're going to be running from lions in a coliseum. Millions of Christians die in those 300 years. So early persecution keeps the church culturally isolated, meeting in various places. Where did they meet in Rome under heavy persecution? They met under the city in a place called the what? Catacombs. Have you ever heard of them? That's where they met. Hiding, trying to stay safe because the, the, the rulers of the Roman Empire are after them. In the days of Constantine, 313 A.D., he passes an edict of toleration, and then formal legalization of Christianity comes shortly after that, whereby the church transitions from being a persecuted minority to becoming a culturally significant and highly visible institution. So whereas if you were an elder or you were a bishop and they found you, you were dead, now all of a sudden you were being sought out and you were attached to the office of the civil authority. And you in very short order became the religious leader in the community. And all of a sudden the church becomes very culturally significant highly visible, and buildings are beginning to be built, and the church is beginning to take on a more institutional role in society. Now you say, oh, I just wish we could get back to the old days. Well, you know what? The Bible nowhere prescribes the home as the place to meet. It nowhere prescribes it. It only describes it. It describes it as that, it never prescribes it. So what I want us to think about as we bring this to close is which is better? Is it better to meet in a house or is it better to meet in a building like this? And we would simply say both. Right? Both. Either or. In fact, we would say that it really has to do with the need of the moment. So if you're in China, you may want to meet in a house church. You may even want to meet in a house in America. But it's really according to the need of the moment. That's what we see in the New Testament. That this is one of those areas of the Scripture where God has not prescribed a certain place to meet in order for a church to be rightly ordered. We talked about rightly ordered churches last week. For a church to be rightly ordered, there are deacons and deaconesses and there are elders. But there's not a place in the book of 1 Timothy when he says, and if you meet in a building, then you're an apostate. He never says that. 
In fact, he doesn't even talk about it. In other words, we could just say that this is one of those areas where the church is free to make up its own mind as to where it would meet according to the need of the moment. Now, I would suggest to you that it's important for a church to attempt to function in a way that provides for a central meeting place with a community presence. We are blessed that we are centrally located in this valley right on the highway. We also have a central meeting place and community presence online. Because that's where a lot of people find the church now. But it's important for a church to attempt to function in a way that it provides a central meeting place and a community presence while it still utilizes homes as a base for outreach. My friend, that's what we do with small groups. That's what that's all about. Is that sense of intimacy and relationship that happens in smaller settings when people get together and study the Word of God, build relationships, and do so in the intimate setting of a dwelling place. That's what that's all about. So what defines a true church? Let's just ask this and we'll close. What differentiates a small group from a church? Is a small group a church? In what way? Now, I said to you, when two or three gather in the name of the Lord, he is in their midst. But is that really a church? What makes a church a church? John Calvin gave us a threefold definition that is really helpful to understand. In Calvin's definition of a church, these three things should be true or need to be true biblically. Number one, the gospel is rightly proclaimed. If people get together in a house or in a building and they proclaim a false gospel, it's not a true church. A true church proclaims, number one, the true gospel. Secondly, the sacraments are duly observed. Most small groups do not meet to observe the sacraments. That doesn't mean that nobody that meets in a house does, but for a church to be a church, for people to gather in the name of Christ and be a church, the sacraments are duly observed. So you observe the Lord's table and baptism. Those two things are functions of the church. And here's the last one. And you're like, I wonder what this last one will be. Most of us don't like this one nearly as well. Discipline is faithfully practiced. There's accountability. People don't just get to come and go and willy-nilly. No. In a church, the gospel is proclaimed, the sacraments are observed, and my friend, if you live a life of sin and you are unrepentant and you are unwilling to turn, the church has a responsibility to you and to the gospel to wield the keys of the kingdom and to excommunicate, to do discipline. That is a responsibility. These three things then are the true church. Now, here's the question and we close. Is your home set apart to the Lord as a place that he can use to build his kingdom through evangelism and discipleship? Have you ever set your home apart and said, Lord, this home is your home? 
This house is not ours, it's yours. When people come in this place, I want them to see on the walls, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, the word of God. I want my kids to see that. I want my home to be a place where you are glorified, where there's discipleship and evangelism. That's what Aquila and Priscilla, everywhere they go, every town they settle in as a tent maker, their house, in very short order, is a central hub for Christians to gather to talk about Jesus. Let's close. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that as we close today, we would give ourselves your people, that you would use every part of our lives for your glory to grow your kingdom here on earth. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.